So how do you know if a piece of fruit is good? Yeah, you do. So I actually looked up, if I went to an orchard and wanted to pick a peach, so I looked at a website um, for an orchard, and one of the things they said is that it will have a sweet smell, and that on a warm, sunny day, you should be able to smell it just by standing close to it. And I can't actually smell it. It does smell good. Um, but also, yes, you, you feel it. And just, it should have a little bit of give. This one does not yet. Um, and the color. There's a certain, like, a dark yellow, they said. Um, and then, as a peach ripens, it gets rounder. But if you really want to know if this peach is good, what do you have to do? You have to taste it. You have to bite into it, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> um, Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, once again, it says, is it coming up here? I'll read it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So tonight we're looking at goodness. So if goodness is a fruit, what does it taste like? So the Bible tells us that God is good, right? We sang about that uh, tonight already. And in Mark 10, 17, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. God, then, is the definition of what goodness is. Remember Genesis 1? Everything he created, he declared good. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the Bible says that God is good. I grew up in a privileged, white, Christian family, and for me, the good life meant going to college, getting married to a godly man, having children, being a stay-at-home mom, owning the perfect house in the perfect neighborhood where my girls could walk to school, the American dream. Those are good things, right? Well, we bought the perfect house when we moved here to Olympia 15 years ago. It was such a good gift. It was perfect for hosting groups of people. It was within walking distance of all three schools, maybe a little farther to the high school, right, Mariah? <laughs> um, and that, in that house, so many people were blessed. Church people, family, friends, soccer team, 
Well, we bought that house in 2007. Yeah, it was less than a year, and our house was not worth near what we paid for it. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we tried all sorts of things to get to keep that house. It's the only house that Josie, for sure, really knew. But we had to forfeit that house. Why didn't God intervene? There's so many things he could have done miraculously to allow us to stay in that house. At that time, it was really hard to sing, God is good, because it didn't feel so good. We've been with friends and family as they are fighting ugly custody battles that don't seem like God's goodness. And when you pray for good things for your children and then disappointment or even heartache come instead, it seems like, it doesn't seem like God's goodness. And I'm not saying to not pray for good things for your children. God is the giver of all good gifts. The food in our fridge, the water coming out of our tap, healthy children, a loving husband, those are good things. But if God is good all the time, if he is good even for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution, starvation, what does God's goodness truly mean? And again, like Paul read earlier, Psalm 34, 8 through 10, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What does God's goodness taste like? What does it mean that the fruit of goodness is being produced in me and in you? Because obviously my definition of comfort and health, happiness, isn't it? So as I was looking through the Bible for the word goodness as I was studying for this, I came across Exodus 34, and it is here that God defines his goodness for us. So let me first quickly remind us of the backstory of Exodus 34. So Exodus shares the story of how God rescues the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt and how he establishes a covenant with them to be his people set apart from all the other nations. Go to the next slide. So I, I know this is kind of small, but Exodus 19.5 gives us that covenant now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And from watching a Bible project video, I put together this little um, cause and effect here, um, if-then chart. So if they follow the laws for following God and living with each other, and they followed the instructions for the tabernacle, 
basically life with God, life with others, and life for others, then God would make them a kingdom of priests to the other nations, and he would restore God's presence with humanity. So Tim Mackey says they would show the nations what God is truly like and make God's presence accessible to humanity. Well, after this, in Exodus 19, the people agree. They're like, yes, we will follow you. You rescued us. You brought us through the Red Sea. You gave us water and food in the desert. Of course we will follow you. But then two seconds later, it seems, as God is giving detailed instructions and laws to Moses, what are the people at the foot of the mountain doing? They're making themselves an idol. They're made this golden calf and said, here's the God that rescued us from Israel. So just after they said yes, they betray the God who rescued them. And in Exodus 32, you will read how Moses made them literally taste that golden calf. He ground, he um, burned it, and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I don't think that tasted all that good. I don't think that's what edible gold leaf is. So the people of Israel have just sinned against God who rescued them. They just turned their backs on him. And it is after this betrayal that God declares his goodness. So, Exodus has some pretty amazing conversations between Moses and God, and Exodus 33, 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I'm going to pick up the story here in Exodus 33, starting at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, it's God, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Does it seem like, oh, I'm going to keep reading. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. Does it seem like Moses is repeating himself here? I have found favor in your sight. You know me by name. I think that shows that Moses understood that God knew him through and through. And Moses asks and continues to ask to know more of who God is. Friendship with God, being known by God and working to know 
God. When he asks to see his glory, that word is kavod, and it literally means weightiness. So he's saying, show me your weightiness. Show me who you truly are. And Moses didn't quite understand what he was asking for, but he wanted to know more about who God is. And here's what God says in response to, please show me your glory, in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, points out that the first verse, 19, in the first verse, first, in verse 19, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then in verse 22, he says, while my glory passes by. God's glory is his goodness. Well, let's see what his goodness is. 34 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with, with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Another Dane Ortland quote, highly recommend him in his book, Gentle and Lowly. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is. Oh, whoops, I forgot this part. Let me go back. Let me finish this. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. Let's look at that 
verse 6 and 7. One more time, I think I have that again. So I'm going to read this again. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So now the Dane Ortland quote. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is, what he is like, his distinctive resplendence, what makes God God. And when God himself sets the terms on what his glory is, he surprises us into wonder. Our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel swinging, judgment relishing. We, ex we expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution for our waywardness. And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. So God's goodness, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abundant, steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiveness and justice. Merciful and gracious. So I came across this quote as I was looking for good definitions, and it says, In his mercy, God withholds what we do deserve, and in his grace, God heaps upon us infinite blessings we do not deserve. Where would we be without God's mercy and grace? Just like the Israelites, I have turned against God over and over when I don't trust his goodness. I look to other things for comfort, or I manipulate or take advantage of others in order to obtain that comfort and that ease. I need God's mercy and his grace every day. Our world needs his mercy and his grace. We, don't, we may not always want to give grace, but we want to receive grace. In the last couple of years, I have participated in trainings and meetings around racial equity, and I was surprised um, one time to actually find in one of the norms, the meeting norms, it said to give grace to each other. Our world is looking for grace. God's goodness is that he is slow to anger. Dane Ortland says this, Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Kings, Jeremiah. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine, that should be anger. Divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. 
Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. For fallen humans, we learn in the New Testament, this is reversed. We are provoked to love one another. According to Hebrews 10.24, Yahweh needs no provoking to love, only to anger. We need no provoking to anger, only to love. The goodness of God is his mercy, his grace, his slowness to anger, his abundance of steadfast love, and faithfulness to thousands. Commentaries that I read said that that can be translated as a thousand generations. And when we read the Psalms, you hear that steadfast love and faithfulness over and over and over. Mercy, grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and forgiveness, but also justice. There are consequences for sin. In his goodness, God forgives my sin, and he deals with my sin. He deals with wickedness. It is important to see, however, that those consequences, it said that it would be visited for three to four generations, and yet his steadfast love is for a thousand generations. His steadfast love never ends. Now we know that the nation of Israel did not keep their end of the covenant. Over and over they sinned against God, but God kept his end. God is good. So as you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll see these phrases, merciful and gracious, repeated several times. So if you'll go to the next slide, I have some, keep going. There we go. Um, Psalm 86, 103 and 145 all say, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can go to the next slide. Isaiah 67 says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So these words are given to the Israelites over and over and over to remind them of God's goodness Joel says, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Nahum says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God's goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, the Holy Spirit is still working on me to understand and to operate out of God's goodness. But when my mom was dying and following her death, the song that kept coming to my heart was from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Losing my mom much sooner than I wanted <laughs> didn't taste good at all. It's a bitter taste. There was and there is great lament. And yet, 
the Holy Spirit kept reminding me over and over of God's goodness in the midst of my pain. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning, God withholds what I deserve and showers me with his love and his grace. Along with my sorrow, there was this sweetness of God's presence, his goodness. And that sweetness is the aftertaste. As the bitterness fades, the sweetness stays. When God revealed himself to Moses, he established the covenant with Israel. He did that knowing that someday he would send his glory, his goodness in human form. And so in John, we see that. John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In Jesus we see God's glory. No need to hide in the cleft of the rock. Jesus showed us who's got God's goodness in human form. And we read how Jesus called himself the bread of life and the giver of living water. Jesus tasted good to the people that he was with. Jesus showed that mercy and that grace, love, slow to anger. But he didn't let sin slide, right? He dealt with the money changers in the temple. He gave us a new covenant. His side of the covenant didn't change. He sent Jesus, and through his goodness, we become his people. We become that kingdom of priests who show the world who God truly is. We're the ones who spread his goodness to the world. Mercy, grace, love, patience. Another great passage that I love, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk 
in them. Just like the Israelites, when God offered his covenant, when his people had just sinned against him, right? God doesn't wait for us to be good enough. That's impossible. It is through his mercy and grace, his goodness, that we are saved. And through his goodness, we are equipped for good works. Works that will taste good to those around us. Our world, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, strangers, they need God's goodness. They need us to show them mercy and grace, love. They need us to be slow to anger. They need us to have forgiveness and to work for justice. And the only way that we can do that is to go to the source. We need to taste God's goodness for ourselves. So you may know that my husband Randy loves to cook, and I think he's a very good cook. Well, I do do some of the cooking at home, and one of my favorite things to make is taco meat. And if I'm making taco meat and Randy comes home while it's still cooking, I will often say, hey, will you taste the meat and just make it Randy good? <laughs> and his response is always, well, have you tasted it? Usually the answer is no. I like to um, rely on my amazing sense of smell. But Randy says, you have to taste your food when you're cooking it. To produce that goodness, we have to taste God's goodness. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, I think I have this, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So I am participating in that book study, um, Rich Velotis's book, The Deeply Formed Life, and he was writing about um, the practice of slow reading of scripture, and he writes about something he learned from Eugene Peterson. Do we have this one? <laughs> Thank you. One day, Peterson read Isaiah 31.4, which says that the Lord is like a young lion growling over its prey. He immediately thought of his growling, joyful dog playing with its bone. He then discovered a connection. The Hebrew word for growl was the same word for meditate in Psalm 1. This becomes a powerful metaphor for shaping the way we approach Scripture. Meditation, then, is the practice of slowly chewing on God's word until it penetrates our heart. You know the saying, you are what you eat? We taste God's goodness by meditating on his word, chewing God's word, spending time with God, getting to know his goodness. So another cooking episode in our house that happens often is that Randy will decide to make himself something, and he'll ask if I want some, and I'll say, nah, I'm okay. 
I've already eaten or something. And so Randy goes about doing his home version of chopped, adding a little of this and a little of that and seasoning it with this and seasoning it with that. And then he sits down next to me and he starts eating. Mmm, he says, you've got to taste this. And sure enough, I end up getting my own fork and eating more than I originally said I was going to. When we taste God's goodness, we then share it with others. You've got to taste this. When you share with me how you have tasted God's grace, his love, his forgiveness in your life, it allows me to taste it too. It nourishes me along with you. Remember that garden analogy that we've been talking about as we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit? I can't produce that goodness on my own. The Holy Spirit is doing that, but I have a part to play. When the Holy Spirit offers me a taste, I have to chew it. I need to keep tasting Keep eating the bread of life. One more Dane Ortland quote. We can go on to the next slide. I will read the Dane Ortland quote then. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victories in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. I have to keep tasting and chewing on God's truth about himself so that I am filled with the taste of his goodness. And then I won't be able to keep from sharing his goodness with the world. Filling myself with the truth of God's mercy, his grace, love, forgiveness, and justice for me. Church, keep tasting God's goodness. Keep chewing on his truth and his presence and know that he is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving, and just. Will you pray with me? Oh God, you are so good and your goodness tastes so sweet and we need it. We need to be filled with your goodness. I pray, Father, for each of us that you would cause us to long for the taste of you 
and that we would keep coming back to your word and keep chewing on the truth of who you are. Thank you, God, that you are producing that goodness within us. And I pray, Father, that it would spill out of us and that people at our work, people in our neighborhoods, people in our city, that they would taste your goodness from us and through us and that they would know that you are good. In Jesus' good name, amen.